Welcome to the Real Estate Lowdown. I'm your host, Bill Bymel. The Real Estate Lowdown is your weekly opportunity to step into the conversations going on in today's real estate and mortgage markets. We explore terms and concepts of the industry, host interviews of intriguing industry cohorts from high net worth investors to real estate agents just making their mark. We will share our love of all things real estate, bringing you the most innovative and sustainable real estate lifestyle ideas each and every week. If you enjoy what you hear today, hit the follow button, subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and please share your support with a quick review. You can find me on the web at billbymel.com, and thanks for joining this episode of the Real Estate Lowdown. Welcome, Paul David Thompson, to the Real Estate Lowdown. Well, thanks for having me. I'm ready to share the lowdown. (laughs) Great. Well, for my audience, just a little background before we get started. You know, Paul is a successful real estate investor and entrepreneur. You used your expertise in real estate to make the transition from working a traditional nine to five schedule to becoming a first full-time investor in just a few period, a few short years, you basically turned your dream of escaping the grind of, you know, into a reality. In your own investments, you, Paul, are the founder of My Freedom Foundry and Next Level Mastermind. So you're helping other real estate entrepreneurs grow and scale your business. I know you have a podcast. And one of the things I learned about you this morning is that you've made a transition into land development and commercial real estate as well. Does that kind of encapsulate who you are, Paul? You nailed it. You nailed it. Well, fantastic. So how long, tell me, first of all, let's start by kind of the beginnings of the story, because, you know, a lot of folks, that is the dream is right to get away from you know, a a lifetime job at a corporation and really be your own boss. And one of the ways that we know in America is best suited to do that is obviously to own a small business. And and real estate Mm -hmm. is obviously one of the ways that has made the most millionaires in this country as well. When you made that, what was the impetus for it? Was it just something you saw on the television? Where where did it all come Mm -hmm. from? Where, Where did it all start for you? Well, I was raised in a relatively low-income household. I was well cared for, never had any kind of real trauma. You know, I never went hungry, but we're just in an environment where money was always a concern. And I was the first person in my ancestry, I guess, to go to college and get a four-year degree. And that was instilled in me very early. It's like, that's the way out. And it was able, it did allow me to get a certain degree of financial security because I now earned an income as a professional engineer that allowed me to live the middle income, maybe even upper middle income lifestyle in the US, which you know is not an all bad life when you compare that to the rest of human history. It's okay. But your time is not your own. And the longer I worked in the corporate world and the more I got in, ensnared in the politics, I just got fed up with it. And there was a very specific moment when I was on a 
a beach vacation and we were having a good time and I wanted to extend that vacation. My kids were out of school. My wife's a stay-at-home mom. Uh, I had the vacation time. I was a, a tenured employee, a high, a strong contributor. You know, I had you know lots of employees that worked for me. I managed a big budget. You know, we did. I did good things for the company. I called my boss and I was like, yeah, you know, we're going to look to extend this this vacation rental another week. I'll still work. I'll just be at the, be at the office. You know, like I'll just be in the the beach house instead of in the office. And that was just completely shut down. It wasn't even a conversation. It was like, no, you need to get your ass back to work on Monday. We don't do that here. I was like, well, you know, you know, we we do make the technology that makes that possible. I work for an internet service provider. Like video streaming in 2015 was still was a thing. Still, this was pre-pandemic, and the idea of working remote just was considered by the old school powers that be just not something that you did. So we're just like, like no, and it just hung up on me. So it wasn't even a consideration. And that was the wake up call that I needed to realize. Okay, like I'm not as valuable as I thought I was. And I'm a, a cog in this corporate machine and they don't give a damn about me. It's like, okay, well, thank you. Because that was the impetus I needed to control my life mm. and find a way to be able to stop exchanging my time for money and own something that paid me whether I was there or not. Right, right. Really brilliant. And, you know, we come from similar backgrounds. I was raised middle class, wrong side of the tracks. And to begin with, my parents kind of moved us into a upper middle class by the time I was in high school. But my mother was the first member of her family to go to college. And so that was wow. the, the gateway and all similar, you know. So, like, it's interesting how when you don't have a lot to begin with, and yet you're surrounded by it. So I ended up starting to see money because I got a scholarship to a private school, you know, and there was really mm -hmm. that motivation to have that freedom. And then to take it a step mm -hmm. further, I, you know, I totally get what you're saying about corporate America. I was very fortunate to take internships in college. I had offers from Barclays Bank to come work at the bank. And I was a film student at NYU, but I knew how to talk and I knew how to operate in the business environment. And so mm -hmm. there was plenty of opportunity for me to move up the corporate ladder. And I just couldn't see that life for myself. I had that lack of control. Luckily, I made that choice early on and figured out a way to make a living doing it. But for most people, that's just not an option or a reality or it becomes one later in life. And so then the transition started what with you just started, you took some courses, you bought, you bought your first house. How, when did all that yep. start and what lessons did you learn early on? <laughs> so 2015, I bought my first single family house here in Little Rock, Arkansas, where I live. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to do the Burr method. I went to bigger pockets. You know, when you do a search on how to learn how to do real estate, that's a pretty top search, you know, even back then it was, and probably certainly is now. And there's a lot of really good information out there. You know, like the internet's an incredible opportunity. Like most of the answers to what you have questions about are, are out there. And so it was this model that I thought, okay, well, I'm going to see if I can do a little experiment and see if this Burr method makes sense. And so I did the the buy and refi scenario. And I was into it with a commercial loan, or I guess I got a private loan and then I refied into a commercial loan. And that's one of the mistakes that I would say I made is I didn't use the Fannie and Freddie back type loans early enough. I should have done those first instead of getting, you know, eight, 10 commercial loans, mm -hmm. because once I got that many commercial loans, I wasn't eligible for the Fannie and Freddie backed loans. Mm -hmm. So I kind of did that a little bit 
out of order, but I still have that same property. I still have the same loan on that same property still, you know, it's just, it's a, you know, a commercial property. Oh, so did you commercial start? Loan. Yeah, commercial loan. It's commercial loan on a residential property. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I was going to no, ask correct. you. Yeah, I would want to make that differentiation. So when you say a commercial loan, you're talking about like a hard money or a business purpose loan, right? Or like well, a, it's, it's mean, not hard what, money. What made it it's, commercial, in other words? It's a it's a local bank, right? Oh. So a local regional bank that has a commercial division and they have a residential division. The residential division is eligible for properties from one to four. And then you can do commercial loans on residential property or RV parks or mountain, you know, or whatever kind of other commercial projects that are out there. It could be building a building, but they also will do single family houses. This is what I call commercial. And so it's a 20 year AM It the, the balloon pops every three to five years and they recast it. Oh, interesting. And then when the balloon now, is it fixed for that three to five year period? It is. Yeah. Fixed so for three then, to five years and pretty competitive rates. Yeah. Pretty competitive. So what happens the next time the bubble, the not the bubble, but the what time the next time you get a maturity, and now that we're in a different interest rate environment, what are you expecting to see? Right. Higher interest rates. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm glad you yeah. said. I mean, you know that it's coming, right? I mean, yeah. So most of my loans, probably when I was doing it back then, you know, were, were sub five or six percent, and then when interest got our money got really cheap and you know some of these commercial loans were sub four percent and so now when those loans are going to be recast or i get a new loan today you know the the going market rate could be anywhere between you know as high as eight or nine percent and and who knows it'll be 12 next year (laughs) who knows how are you hedging for that i mean like what are your concerns are you able to cover the debt service on a loan that's double the interest rate yeah, I've got comfortable cash flow there. So I mean, it's something you want to monitor, though. You, you don't want to be cavalier about it, but you kind of run some models real quick. You're know, like, hey, well, what if interest rates did go to 12? Would I be able to to float and cover? You know, basically, would my DSCR be high enough? Right. And in this, in, in my case, it is. My, my global cash flows would be sufficient to to cover comfortably have a, a DSCR of 1.5 even. So, yeah. And yeah. typically 1 to 1 or 1.25 that people want. That's so good that you brought that up, DSCR. It's one of the topics that I've actually spoke a lot about in my podcast recently is because Mm -hmm. unlike you, who seem to be a professional who has thought out his various situations, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are a lot of folks that went out there and have speculated. You know, there are folks that speculated on the possibility of running an Airbnb operation in a rental Mm -hmm. market. And then, you know, the DSCR loan, which for our our, our audience that hasn't listened to my real tidbit about it is the debt service coverage ratio. It's it's like a hard money loan based upon the rental income projected or proven on a property. Now, that can really run a risk, obviously, especially it can run a risk in two ways. One, a reduction in income in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of those folks that were out speculating that they were going to become Airbnb super hosts are finding it to be a much more difficult proposition with it a is, lot yeah. more competition than existed, you know, at the beginning of COVID. And then you've got the interest rate issue. You know, what works, you know, we were at a, I was at a banking conference in, in with some special assets groups on the commercial side mm-hmm. in February and gentlemen on my panel had done the analysis on a book of, of commercial loans that they were managing. And there, anything that was sitting at a 1.3, 1.25 debt service coverage, which was a, for many lenders in a reasonable 
coverage ratio, although I think one five, one to two is obviously much better in the situation you're in, sure. you know, and if you take a portfolio at three and a quarter or three and a half or three and three quarter percent, and you double that interest rate, like the yeah. way interest rates have doubled in the last year, a DSCR of 1.25 becomes like a 0.9, just yep. based upon the same income, uh, rental income. Mm-hmm. And so it's a real problem across the industry. What are you, what are you hearing amongst, you know, I mean, you're, you're teaching people, you're talking to mm-hmm. people, uh, you know, is there a concern? I mean, what, what's on the horizon? What are you seeing right now out on the streets? Well, what I'm seeing overall is that while interest rates have gone up, so has rent. Now, it hasn't been quite as aggressive as interest rates, but rental rates tend to track inflation. In fact, it's one of the largest contributions to <laughs> a housing cost or one of the largest con- contributors to inflation. So does there is a bit of a lag period, but in most markets, and this is a very market-dependent thing, rents have gone up some as well. So that helps hedge this concern that now my cost of money has gone up. Also, in a lot of these properties that you, you've you owned for several years, you've been buying down equity in these properties all along. So there is still an option to just sell the property if for whatever reason your interest rates were super low and you bought it a little too high, you know, three, four, five, six, seven, eight years ago when interest rates were much, much cheaper, you still have some equity. And so it gives you some room to fire sell it if you have to. The real concern is if you bought a big glut of properties just prior to the pandemic and they're fixed at 3% interest and you were pushing your margins the whole time and you're barely cash flowing, when your interest, when your loans, your commercial loans get recast to the market rate now, if it's still at eight and nine recasts, you know, that, that could be in some cases a three times increase in interest. So there are some options there. You can talk to the bank and they can basically re-amortize it. So it was amortizing at 15 or 20 years. A lot of commercial loan banks, I'm saying now they're changing their amortization schedules to as high as, high as 30 years. They don't like it, but they rather do that than lose the loan. But sometimes the banks just say tough luck. You know, like you, you need to go shop for another option. And so you're, you, as a business owner, you have to make some tough decisions. And it might be the time just to, that wasn't a good bet. And you get out of that bet as soon as you can. So when you go to apply for these com- small commercial loans, as opposed to mm-hmm. resi, like what was it because you wanted it to be based upon I mean, in that case, did you have to show personal income or was it just if the cash flow of the property was good enough to qualify you? Is that why you went? That's a really good question. A lot of people aren't aware of the different types of loan products that are out there. And so when you're buying single family, this is a single family specific conversation. When you buy single family, you have a variety of loan options to work with. And when you're buying single family, meaning it's one to four units or less, it's a residential play, then you can go the traditional Fannie, Freddie, you know, secondary market loans. And those tend to be the safest most competitive rates that are out there. The problem is, is that you have to qualify based on your personal income, not the income of the property. Whereas with commercial loans, they still get you personally. They want to see you a W-2. They want to see that you have good credit, but they're also much more concerned or they're in addition to their concern and will consider the contribution of the income from the property, which is why they look at this number called the DSCR, the debt service coverage ratio. They want to make sure that the cash flows from the property that you're, you're renting will comfortably cover your debt payment. 
And so that's what I was looking for is I think I'm in a misstep. The first five or 10 properties, I should have maximized my slots of the Fannie and Freddie, but I was doing what I was doing. And I would just was able, I was qualifying for bank loans like that so easily. And I was getting really good deals. This is 2015. Finding deals was e- easier than and I lived in a very cash flow friendly market. So I was just gobbling up properties as fast as I could. Mm. So are you stay primarily in Arkansas with your personal investments? And and what do you say to that as far as because I'm a big believer in new new people, new investors kind of staying local. I'm assuming that's mm. kind of the path you followed. It is. And when I think about this scenario of, okay, I want to be an investor. I don't have a lot of experience. I want to use single family as a way to learn because it's the lowest learning curve investment in real estate that I can think of. It, and we all kind of natively understand real estate. Like, I mean, like we understand what it's like to live in a house. We know what's a good thing and a bad thing. We know what rents, it kind of is, there's less to learn there. Right. So right. then the, you want to go to a market you understand. And if you happen to be living in an area that, cash flow tends to make sense, typically the Midwest or the Southeast, then yeah, by all means invest in your backyard because it's a it's a location specific and market specific business. Yeah. And so the more you know about the market, the better. But some people live in California, some people live in Canada, some people live in Miami. You just like the cash flow does not exist, you know, unless you're buying all cash and then you're getting a one percent return. <laughs> so right. So most people aren't sitting on $10 million of cash to go buy two properties. So so instead you go further afield and you go to a place where you have some sort of connection or you have some sort of insight. So if you went to college back east and you know the market, go there. So you go to a market where you understand and have the most connections as possible because it's the local knowledge and the network that you build in an area is what will make real estate hum for you. If you just land into a random place and you don't build a network, when when you have an emergency, which will happen in real estate, you're scrambling trying to find a beekeeper to remove the bees from from underneath the porch. You know, it's like weird stuff happens, and the deeper your network is, the easier it is to find those problems. I, that's all really great advice, and you know, on the topic of money, you know, there's a lot of folks. I mean, it is a cash intensive business. My side of the business, I'm buying loans, yeah. so it's not really financeable as much. Right. There, you know, but it is a cash intensive business, and yet you do train people on how to get involved with little or no money. You know, if somebody's trying to get started and they're on a fixed income and they want that, there is opportunities for people to kind of get involved without a huge outlay of capital or brand in the bank or something. Yeah, the, the more money that you have in the bank, the easier the business is for sure. But one thing you have to recognize is that when you look at any deal, a deal needs a variety of things. And you, you need time, you need money, you need networking, you need knowledge, and then you need a good deal. And so if you find a good deal, it isn't that hard to find money for the deal. And so if you don't have a lot of cash, then you use your time and knowledge to go and find a good deal. And you parlay that into somebody who has cash that's willing to partner with you or willing to lend you on that property. That's what hard money loans do is they they bring a lot of cash to the table and allow you to flip the house, allow you to buy that house short term, force the appreciation and refine to something else. And so if you don't have cash, then you need to go and fill your knowledge, fill your brain with knowledge so that you can figure out how to create value with your time. 
Yeah, that makes sense. You know, and it offers some kind of, you know, angle or utility to a deal. Absolutely. Tying something up for little money and then finding an invest, giving yourself the time to find an, an investor to syndicate it to or flip yep. it to um, mm-hmm. or what, whatever. That, that makes a lot of sense. Well, this has been a great conversation, Paul. You know, here we are in June, late June, summer of 2023. I always like to put that on there in case somebody's listening to this in 20 years from now. And, you know, we are at a, it, what seems like, you know, a, a kind of a turning point in the real estate market. You know, you mentioned commercial loans, but you're really only dealing in single family resi or multifamily resi properties. Right. The residential market, I think, has still has a strong demand and yeah. and a, certainly a lack of inventory that will mm-hmm. will soften any blow that comes from a general economic downturn. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the canary seems to be in the coal mine when it comes to commercial. Any thoughts on where we are in the cycle? What things that investors should be aware of? What any predict, bold predictions for the rest of this year or maybe in the years to come that might are kind of guiding you in how yep. you're looking at things? I love to make predictions because I'm always wrong. Yeah, it's, it's like, you know, I do not have a crystal ball. Like I, I do not see around the corner. And so as a result, I prefer to base all my investments based on the fundamentals of why we invest in the first place. I'm not looking to time the market. I'd rather just spend time in the market. There's ups and downs in the market are always going to happen no matter what kind of market you're in, whether it's real estate or the stock market or gold or crypto, whatever, right? There's ups and downs. And so I'm a long-term player. I like to buy fundamentally something that is obviously at a discount right now. And I want that thing to be able to pay me cash flow along the way that comfortably covers the the forecast experience expenses. And I do forecast the the ups and downs of the potential forecast or the potential expenses. And so I'm not looking to buy razor thin deals. Buying razor thin deals is what gets people in trouble. And because you're gonna make a mistake sooner or later. And I've I've done it. I've bought deals like, ah, oh, it'll work out. And so later on thinking, I would have saved myself so much time and energy if I just said no. So you want to do be fill your mind with the knowledge and know how to evaluate deals or investment opportunities. And how can I capture as much potential upside and minimize my downside? And it exists a lot in the marketplace. That that approach exists in the marketplace quite a bit. And I just fundamentally believe that we all need a place to live and it's a fundamental need that everybody has. Yeah. And we, in the U.S., we keep adding new people. This is not true everywhere. Like you know, we always assume every place is going to continue to grow. And this is not the, the true in a lot of other countries. But for right now, the forecast of the U.S. shows that just primarily because of immigration, we continue to add more people to our country. And that means they need places to live. And I just I'm big on that bet. Yeah, I can't disagree. You know, I have to admit I'm more of a coastal guy, but I got to tell you, there's a ton of value in the Midwest. I was in Iowa last two weeks ago, met with some of the locals there, was looking at real estate and and just great people, good demographics. You know, I I mean, I could there's just so I think there's a lot of 
hidden gems in the middle of the country. What do they refer to as the flyover state? Fly, I mean, there's I, a reason. There's a reason. It's a long way between towns. That's true. Yeah. But it's beautiful, you know? Yeah. And listen, you know, you're making your mark there and you're right. We have more bodies than housing to support it. And no matter what the downturn, if you make a smart fundamental deal, See, that's what's, I think, mm-hmm. the big change is that you yep. could get away making dumb deals to a couple of years ago because right. you got bailed out by the prices of, of real estate. And if yep. you make a smart fundamental deal that cash flows and you take into account the possibility of downturns or increased cost of capital and it still works, then fundamentally that deal will always work. So that's really great advice. Wonderful. Paul, I really appreciate spending some time with you. And thank you for speaking to my audience here at the Real Estate Lowdown. Bill, thanks for having me. And if you want to hear more from Paul, there will be information in the in the description of this podcast. And you can go find out where to get coached by Paul, where to meet him, where to listen to his podcast. And, and we'll look forward to having you again on a future episode. Thanks, Bill. Looking forward to it. That's a wrap of today's episode of the Real Estate Lowdown. I enjoy bringing this content to you each and every week, and I really appreciate you tuning in. If you haven't already done so, please share the Real Estate Lowdown or any episode, any favorite episode with your friends, family, and you know, if you don't mind, leave a positive review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember to follow us so you don't do get notified every time a new episode is released. Love to hear from you directly at billbymel.com. Till then, see you next time.